and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Coming this month on Patreon is my interview with concert divisor, presenter, the Artistic and Educational Director of the National Children's Orchestras of Great Britain and my old desk partner, Catherine Arledge. This month also sees another conductor returning to answer 10 brand new questions on a series called The Mic Test. And this month, it's the new music director of the Birmingham Opera Company, Alpes Chohan. To find out how to subscribe and hear these interviews, plus many, many other things, open up the show notes below, and for as little as £5 a month, you can gain access to a treasure trove of brand new conducting-based content. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor who, over a very long and distinguished career, has had positions with orchestras in New Zealand, Australia, Malaysia, Japan, South Korea, the UK and his native Switzerland. He was also director of one of the world's most prestigious music festivals for six years. It's my great pleasure to welcome Matthias Bamert. Matthias, lovely to speak to you today. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Good, good. Um, we have a lot to get through, uh, so I'm going to go straight back to the very beginning. And I know that you, uh, you're a composer, but you also play the oboe. How did music first come into your life as a child? What was your first musical experiences? Well, my, my parents were teachers, so this is the intellectual middle-class bourgeois family where every, everybody plays an instrument. Hmm. And um, so... My older brother, he played the violin. My older sister played the piano. Mm. And I was too small to play an instrument. <laughs> so when they uh, played music at home, I wanted to play something. So they gave me a triangle. <laughs> so that's, that's the beginning of my career. Wow. <laughs> but, but, but soon the triangle was uh, taken over by something else as you grew up, I'm assuming. Unless you, be <laughs> unless you became an international triangle expert, I don't know. <laughs> no, no. Molto espressivo. Yeah, indeed. <laughs> so how was the, what, were the, what were the next instruments for you? Well, then I started the violin, mm. which was not particularly successful. <laughs> and, and, and I tried some other instruments, but I ended up with the oboe, mm. which I then liked very much, and that became my my instrument. Um, and when I read Wikipedia, which, as we know, Matthias is is to be totally trusted, uh, not um, the first things it it tells me that you studied in Darmstadt and Paris with Boulez and Stockhausen, which I'm assuming was composition, but um, I'm. It also says that you went on to become a professional oboe. So where did you study the oboe? And at what point did composition come into your life as something you thought you might want to take up? I studied in, in my native Switzerland. Mm. And then when I was uh, 18, I went to Paris to the Conservatoire National Supérieur. And there I was in oboe and chamber music. And then I started also taking composition lessons with uh, Jean Rivier. Mm and uh, also conducting. Yes. And um, so I spent four, four years in Paris and then I came back and then I went to Darmstadt. Uh, I must say that during the time in Paris, I had the chance to go to the classes of uh, Messia. Mm. Messia, interestingly enough, was not a teacher for composition. Oh, right. Because there was, 
there were all, it's a French system, there were already teachers of composition. So Messiaen couldn't be teacher of composition, but he certainly deserved to have a class. Yeah. So his class was called analysis. <laughs> so I, I, I was not inscribed at that class, but I, I was allowed to go and, and uh, go to those classes, which uh, were very interesting. He was a very multifaceted man. And yes. um, I, I kind of profited from that, actually more than from my composition lessons with, uh, with Jean Rivier. Yeah. And then after that four piece, I went to Darmstadt and had then the contact with, with, with uh, Pules and, and Stockhausen. Yeah. But you know that, I'll give you an example of Pules. Is of course, it's totally different to compose a Pules then and yes. then the conductable as later on but he was he would explain something in class for 10 minutes and then he asked us did you understand and we said no <laughs> then he laughed and he explained it in two sentences and we all understood <laughs> which begs the question why he did it for 10 minutes the first time because to show his intellectual superiority yes of course yeah which yeah. he had yes there's no doubt no of course <laughs> oh i mean while we're on the subject of boules did you ever speak to him about conducting um because i would imagine that 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 he had very different views i mean obviously he would have shown his intellect as well but did you ever speak to him about conducting at all not not at that point no no, no, but of course I knew Boulez much later. Yes. And, also the, and then also as director of Thodosone Festival. Yes, yes, of course. Um, you mentioned that you, when you were in Paris, the, at the conservatoire there, you, you studied conducting then. Who was teaching you at, at this early stage? I'm assuming these were your first steps into conducting. Well, that was very little. I, yeah. I, I, didn't, I didn't finish uh, my conducting classes there. Um, my, I mean, learning how to conduct I did then when I was assistant in Cleveland. Of course, yes, yes. Well, before we get there, uh, I want to talk through a, a life change that you must have experienced. So, having graduated and, or you've gone to Darmstadt and studied composition, you graduated from Paris as an oboist as well, and from 1965 to 1969, you were the principal oboist of the Salzburg Mozart Orchestra. So you are a professional orchestral oboist. Well, I, I have to tell you that, um, of course, in, in, in Europe, to start as a conductor, you have to go as a correttitor at the opera house. Yes. And so I applied, that was in Kassel, which is a, a big house. Yeah, it is, yes. And so that, you know, went to the interview and then uh, came the, the piano playing. I play a little bit the piano, but not... Anyway, yeah. they, they gave me a Rosenkavalier, which I couldn't play. <laughs> yeah. And so I then decided that this is probably not the way to go. I had this facility of playing the oboe. I thought maybe if I go for a few years in an orchestra, I can learn orchestra life and also repertoire and look uh, the conductors from the other side. Mm, absolutely. Mm. Well, uh, as I mentioned in the email when I first contacted you, uh, I was a violinist in the City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra uh, a little longer than four years. I did 22 years, but I remember playing for you, for instance, very fondly. Um, 
but that's definitely a route that some conductors seem to take when the door of repetiteur in an opera house or you know that Kapellmeister route is is slammed shut um is to go and play in an orchestra and learn it from within um what do you think you learned in those four years in Salzburg playing that you probably wouldn't have learned any other way? Uh, it's sitting in an orchestra. Mm. And, um, you know, that, that, that's an experience that I, that is, when I give master classes, I, at, at the beginning, I tell them what it is to be a, an orchestra musician where you, you, you know, the education is as long and as expensive very often as a doctor or, or a lawyer. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. But then you're sitting all your life and there's always one who stands and who tells you what to do. <laughs> yeah, and exactly. That psychologically, being an orchestra musician is very tough. Mm. Um, that's true. I'm not even talking about instrumentally or musically, but but to just be locked in that situation is difficult. And it, it is also what I always say that when you conduct an orchestra, you have to know that in that orchestra might be musicians that are as good as playing that instrument as you are a conductor. Absolutely true, very you know, true. The, yeah. the, the mutual respect and um, that, that's what I learned there with all the frustrations that you have as, as, a, <laughs> as a young orchestra player who actually didn't want to play in an orchestra, much rather conducted. Yeah. So uh, what made you think, right, enough of this oboe playing, enough scraping reeds and all of this, um, I'm going to go and conduct. What was the decision? Uh, was it made for you or did you just decide, right, I'm shutting my oboe case and I'm going to go for conducting? Um, I, I, I now tell you a fairy tale. Okay. <laughs> I like fairy tales. <laughs> but it's a true one. Oh, good. <laughs> um, I had a friend in Salzburg who knew the Vienna Philharmonic. Hmm. And so, of course, during the festival, all the great conductors, all the great orchestras were there. And so there was uh, George Sell rehearsing the Vienna Philharmonic. And he arranged for me to go to that rehearsal. Mm. And I have never, ever heard anything comparable. <laughs> it was just unbelievable. And so when the rehearsal was finished, I was like still stuck in my seat. <laughs> and there George Sell comes towards me and looked at me with those eyes. You know, he just looks through you. <laughs> Uh, unbelievable, intimidating, and he's, he asked me what I was doing, and I just I said, you know, I'm, I'm an oboe player in the orchestra, but I don't want to play the oboe. And he said, what else do you do? I said, well, I would like to be a conductor. I also compose. Mm. He says, tomorrow you bring me a composition. <laughs> no. <laughs> so which told me that I could go back the next day. Yeah. And I brought him a, a score. He looked at it maybe two seconds. <laughs> and he said, this needs to be a G sharp. <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, he had those eyes. Yeah. He just, he, he just saw, he, he just knew, he just saw. Wow. Anyway, he was kind of intrigued by that. 
And then I went to the other rehearsals and then he said, I'll be back next year. See you then. I mean, it's a fairy tale, I tell you. Wow. That's unbelievable, isn't it? That you happen to be sat there. He came and chatted to you. And then there is a, already there is a link, there is a bond. Um, and and somebody like that, you know, uh, I mean, he was a massive figure at that time, wasn't he? Oh. Yeah. Anyway, a year later, I went. And he again came to me. He remembered every word we spoke a year early. Wow. And then we, we, we talk more about conducting. And then the, at the dress rehearsal at the end, he said, if you want to come to Cleveland for a year, you can come, but I cannot pay you. Yeah. So in Salzburg, I had a, an American girlfriend who said, with all the foundations in, in America, if George Sells gives you a recommendation, they all pay for your year. So we did that with, she wrote for me this application at the Ford Foundation and I got the money. And um, well, she did this for me, so I had to marry her after that. <laughs> oh, Actually, you know what? I'm still married to her. Oh, wow. That's what a wonderful story. That's two fairy tales, Matthias. That really is. <laughs> well, as you know, in my pro pro profession, I'm, I'm far behind what women <laughs> is concerned. <laughs> anyway, so we went to Cleveland, and I had this year with George Sell. I was not only, I was a conducting fellow. Yes. There was a resident conductor called Louis Lane. Then there was two assistant conductors. One was Michael Cherry, the other one, Jimmy Levine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then came, I came then. Yes. At the end, of course, um, I practically didn't know conducting. I, I made my debut conducting one piece in a children's concert of Jimmy Levine. Yeah. Wow. But of course, I was exposed to, you know, the greatest music yeah. making and, and, and to be a year with that orchestra, it just gives you an idea of <laughs> what an orchestra should sound ideally. Mm -hmm. But anyway, shall I go on? Yes, please. Yeah, yeah. Because there are other fairy tales. <laughs> <laughs> oh well, well, this uh, this is great. Um, I mean, I mean, uh, just butting in very quickly about Cleveland at that point. I mean, they were a, a race car of an orchestra, weren't they? Under Zell, uh, how he'd rehearsed them. I mean, the documentaries I've seen and the clips of rehearsals and the way they played, they were they were at the top of their game then, weren't they? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that, that was the, the first orchestra in America, there was no doubt of that. Uh, uh. And he also, you know, I'm, but everybody says he was never better than before he died. Mm. You can listen to some recordings where that is very, how should I say, straight. Yeah. And he mellowed a lot as, as, a, as an old man. That was the last year of yeah. his life that I was with him. And you say that he was at the top of his game, you know, there was no decline. No. No, yeah. no whatsoever. Yeah.
And what did he teach you? What, what, I mean, was it just being around him rehearsing and he was, uh, he was being around him. Uh, yeah. He was, was very busy. He, uh, he then started a job with the New York Philharmonic because Bull, uh, uh, Bernstein left. Yes. So he took over a, a fair amount of, of New York Philharmonic. Also, he was principal guest conductor of the Concertgebouw. So he was, he was yeah. a very busy man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, amazing. Uh, well, I, I'm interested now to know about fairy fairy tale number two or three, depending on your points of view. <laughs> um, I um, this is actually a good story. Yeah. When I when I then married mm. this American girl, and we bought um, a Volkswagen van. Put all our music and records and, and books and whatever in there, and we drove to Leuven, and there we took the Queen Elizabeth to go to America. Yeah. And um, I was so excited to start my new, new life that um, I, I couldn't go. I couldn't wait to go hmm. and be in in America, be with this orchestra and that all those wonderful things that are waiting for me. And so I was stuck for three and a half days on that stupid boat <laughs> where there was nothing to do mm. and I, I i was so frustrated i was so frustrated that i read the passenger list imagine wow that, that, that is boredom yeah <laughs> that bored i was yeah until i came to the name mr l stokowski <laughs> And he was on board with you. Wow. wow. And so my wife said, you know what? Is it possible that he's as bored as you are? <laughs> Let's write him a note. Yeah. And so she helped me write a note and we gave it to a butler. We went for lunch. When we came back, there was a note in the door where it says, sorry, I missed you. Call me at three o'clock. Leopold Stokowski. Wow. There was just one problem. It's, I didn't speak any English at that time. Ah. So I said, to you, how, how can I call him? And then my wife said, it is also possible you knock on his door. Mm. That can also be called. So that's what I did. <laughs> so I knocked on the door. He opens. Come in. So I told him that I, where I was going. And he says, yes. Yes, uh, very good orchestra, George Sell, very good conductor, but strange ideas about Boeings. <laughs> now, you, as a violin player, you will appreciate that. You know, Absolutely, that's yeah. free Boeings. Yes, all the time, and, yeah. And so he, George Sell had, was very careful with the Boeing. So he thought George Sell was, has strange ideas about Boeings. <laughs> anyway. Then I, was, then I went to Cleveland, but when I then was looking for something else, I heard from a friend that Stokowski was looking for an assistant conductor. Mm. And I thought, ah, I know him. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I applied and I was invited to go and to conduct. There were, I don't know how many, there were various sessions where we could conduct a piece of our own choice of eight minutes, not more, 
which means one minute to walk on stage, eight minutes to conduct, one minute to walk off. So yes. it's always 10. Yeah. So I asked my friend, I said, what is his, his you know, favorite music? What, what does he like? Yeah. And he says, well, you, you know, I, I heard him do Shostakovich Fifth Symphony. Mm. And coming from Budapest and Stockhausen, Shostakovich was not my cup of tea, you can imagine. Mm. <laughs> so I decided, in spite of that, to take the last movement of Shostakovich, Fifth Symphony. And I did was what any young conductor does. I learned the piece, of course, by memory. Mm -hmm. And so that I could give, I could cue any instrument. I was like a policeman, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> so I go to New York. There are all those young conductors standing around, so forth. And then it was, it was my turn, and I walk on stage, and I see that all the strings players were on my left. First flute is where the the, the cello is behind <laughs> the oboe clarinet, but soon the brass was also on the right side in the back. None of my cues worked. <laughs> of course they wouldn't. No. <laughs> That's almost like he found out you'd learned your cues and, and decided to seat the orchestra completely differently. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> anyway, then then I was told by the, by the, by the, by the orchestra manager, he said, call Maestro Stokowski at three o'clock. Mm. And gave me the number. And so I called him and he said, yeah, we would like to have you as an assistant conductor. And I said, this is fantastic and thank you so much. So when, uh, when should I start? He says, next season. Hmm. So next September, I go to New York. I was in Europe for the summer and I go to Carnegie Hall to the first rehearsal and I go to him and he says, what's your name? I said, Matthias Bamert. He said, spell it. <laughs> and I spelled it. Then he says, are you a conductor? I said, yes, um, I'm actually your assistant conductor. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> he was then 88 and, and yes. the memory was not that great anymore. Anyway, I had to introduce and spell my name for at least a month. Uh, and again, you're just watching another one of the legendary maestros rehearsing, performing. Even at this age, I'm assuming there was so much you could get from watching him. Well, he, he was he, he was old, yeah. but there were moments that were absolutely unbelievable. Mm, mm. And, and he as a person was fascinating. He had no memory, but the way he could, he, he could get around but he still liked a lot was after the concert to go to the green rooms and all his old ladies, friends and fans were there. Mm. And he always, you know, he always gave an encore, you know, one of his things. And I remembered that one day uh, he did something, an orchestration of some little Haydn piece it is not for him you know a, a five minute charming piece so in the green room after the concert all the ladies there's a young man a student and he came and says maestro maestro 
this this piece at the end is by Haydn. Is by Haydn. He says yes. What is the opus number? Well, I knew that is not a thing to ask him. He wouldn't remember it. No. So Stokowski looked at him and said, "How could you like the piece if you did not know the opus number?" <laughs> Oh, and the, the young man left very quickly. <laughs> oh, superb! Um, well, the next the next name that crops up is another massive name, and you went on then to become resident conductor back at Cleveland with, or oh, under Lauren Marzell. Um, did you, as a resident conductor, did that mean that you now had a title position, and you were not required to go and assist Marzell, or was there a working relationship like that? Oh yeah, Mr. Marcel was. Yeah, I must say that after this year with Stokowski, then Cleveland asked me to come back. Uh, they liked me, or or also I was the last conductor that George Sell invited. Then the first they asked me to be assistant conductor, and not conducting fellow assistant mm. conductor. So Lauren Marcel gave me always one year contracts because he wanted to get his own. Assistant conductor, not the one from George Sell. Yeah, yeah. So I went on three years with one year contracts. And then Detroit asked me to become resident conductor, at which point I then got a contract and became resident conductor in Cleveland. Mm. But he was a difficult man to work with. Okay, yeah. <laughs> very impressive, very impressive again. Yes. Well, I mean, the one thing I know about him that and maybe you can you can verify, uh, but apparently he had a photographic memory. Is that correct? And would even rehearse yes. rehearse from memory, which is just staggering. Not everything, but oh, right. yeah, okay. he, had, he had a fantastic memory, he had a fantastic ear, he had a fantastic baton. Yeah. But he was not he was not a nice man. Mm. I tell you a story that will surprise you, mm. Mr. Solemnis. And so we had a rehearsal. And then, of course, we have concerts for uh, Thursday and Saturday. So, of course, on Friday night was kind of the dress rehearsal because this is not, it was an amateur chorus. They wouldn't come to the dress rehearsal on, on, on Thursday morning. So he, he did the run through and the rehearsal on Thursday night with everybody. And it was 10 o'clock. And there were maybe five minutes left of Mr. Solemnis. And the orchestra stood up and walked out. <laughs> Comes the dress rehearsal next morning. Some of the soloists wanted to do a little bit of singing. Yes. But after half an hour, it was finished. Hmm. So I was sitting on this chair. After an hour, he said, let's take a break. Nobody played for half an hour. Yeah. <laughs> so after the break, everybody came back. He sits in, in his chair until one o'clock. I don't know any conductor in the world who, have, who would have the guts to do this. He just sat there and made the orchestra sit there. To make the point. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> wow, that's, that, that's pretty staggering, isn't it? Um, uh, they didn't love him, I tell yeah, you. Yeah. 
So yeah, there were things there that you learned not to do when you when you, when you went out to become a music director. <laughs> no, no, but that, let's be fair. I I learned a lot from him. Oh, I'm sure. Yes, yeah. I mean, he had a fantastic technique. Mm, yeah. Amazing, yeah. but he can do you know without without having to say anything, and also you know what conducting is you can solve problems before they happen. Mm, absolutely. And he was a master in that. So, 1977, for the first time, you become a music director of the Swiss Radio Orchestra, and also your music director of the London Motor Place for seven years as well. Uh, principal guest in uh, Glasgow with the Royal Scottish National Orchestra. I'm going to jump on slightly because whilst you were with RSNO, uh, you were a director, festival director of a contemporary music uh, festival called Musica Nova. And you, also, and you also mentioned earlier on that you were a uh, festival director of Lucerne Festival in 90, between 92 and 98. I wonder what you could tell us about being a festival director, what it entails... Uh, I mean, especially Lucerne, such an international festival. And you were also in charge around the before or during the time they opened the new hall, the amazing new hall on the lakes yeah, out there. Yeah, we did then. Yeah. Um, what does it, what's it like being a festival director? Did it take a lot of time away from your conducting career and duties elsewhere around the world? I tried to keep that to a minimum. Yeah. Um, first... You know, when they asked me to do that, I, I, I said, I'm not a festival director. I don't know how to run a festival. Yeah. Where, where should I learn that? And so they, they did insist. And then I thought, as a conductor, I don't know how to play all those instruments. Oh, no. <laughs> but I know how to motivate, to manipulate, whatever you call it, yeah. the people who know how to do that. Mm. I know how to inspire, motivate people who know how to run the festival. Mm. And then um, I said, yes, I will do it. I, I will do the artistic side. And this is very clever in Lutzen. They said, no, 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 we don't have an artistic director and a, and, and a, a business director. We, that has to be one person mm. because... If the artistic director wants to spend money and the business director wants to save money. And so it's already programmed that this is going to be a fight. A fight. Yes. You have one person who is responsible for everything. And so I said, okay, I do it. If I can delegate everything that not I have to do, mm. I do only what, what only I can do. And everything else I delegate. And I had a very good staff there, very motivated, and that worked well. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a wonderful festival. I'm sure we went there, City of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra went there during your time. Yes. Um, with Simon Rattle. I remember you being there and coming out on stage and giving us a welcome speech. I'm pretty sure that was the case. Yes, um, of course. And there, there is no place on the planet quite like Lucerne in the summer when you go there on the... Uh, in, during the festival, um, it's a wonderful place to make music. Superb hall. I mean, of course, us in Birmingham, we sort of 
could understand how the hall worked because it's the same architects who built um, acoustician uh, acoustician yeah sorry it's the same acoustician russell johnson russell johnson uh, yeah Arctic. Artec, who who did the Dallas Hall and then Symphony Hall in Birmingham and then uh, KKL in um, in Lucerne, um, but yeah, what a wonderful experience that must have been. Probably rather stressful, I would imagine, making sure that you had all of these international artists coming in on board. Yeah, but with a with a concert hall, you know, we had a we had a very famous art architect, uh, Jean Nouvel, you know, mm. and then we had a very famous acoustician. Mm. And of course, architects, they would like to build their buildings. And, <laughs> and then at the end, the acoustician comes and makes a good acoustic. Yeah. Today, people know that is not the way it is done. But I mean, the shape of the hall, the size of the hall, everything has something to do with acoustics. Yeah, yeah. And so those two men were fighting. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how many times I was woken up in the middle of the night because of course Russell Johnson was in was in New York and trying to straighten them out but it was not easy but but the result justified everything yeah absolutely it's a it's absolutely wonderful hall it is I, what I love about it also I mean you know not only the inside and the architecture but when you're coming around the lake you know, when you're walking around the lake from where the transport museum is towards the city of Lucerne and the main city, this this slice of roof sort of cuts through. You can see it from almost everywhere on the lake, and it and it's uh, it's a staggeringly beautiful thing um, to, to to put that there, and it, it sort of makes a focal point before you get to the famous cover bridge and all of the other Lucerne um, attractions, that thing, that, that, that building really does make a statement, doesn't it? And yeah, it's, it's a wonderful place. You know that where it is built now, yes. that is actually, that, that, that the ground belongs to the city. Yeah. And so the people of Lucerne had to vote whether the city is allowed to sell this or, or give this for the concert hall. Yeah. And when I took over the festival, the festival was um, uh, was not very popular yeah. with the population of, of Luzerne because they had the impression they had nothing to do with Luzerne. It was just for rich people. Huh. And so my job was to change the image of the festival for the people of Luzerne. And so I made within the festival all kinds of i made a street music festival i made a amateur music festival i made a gypsy music festival where yeah. we had gypsies from all over the world and that kind of opened and and the population of, of lucerne then realized that actually that festival is also for them mm. Mm. so that the vote was positive and we could we could then build that hall Bravo you. That's wonderful. Um, I'm going to go back to your conducting career now. And there's a, a, I'm going to list, on one side of my page, I've got a whole list of orchestras, and then on the other side of my page, I've got another whole list of orchestras. And I wonder whether you could tell me about what differences you might find. So, I mean, between uh, 2000 and 2005, you're principal guest on the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, 03 and 06, Chief Conductor of Western Australian Symphony Orchestra, 05 and 08, Malaysian Philharmonic Chief, and 
you're currently chief of Sapporo Symphony Orchestra and uh, Daejeon in Philharmonic Orchestra in South Korea. Versus the fact that you've conducted in America, you've conducted in Europe, as I said, London, um, London Mozart Players, Royal Scottish National Orchestra, RPO Associate Guest, BBC Orchestras, BBC Philharmonic Recordings I, I Know and Love, plus CBSO. When you go and work in places like Japan, South Korea, Malaysia, I mean, Malaysia is different because that was a very international orchestra anyway, but when you work in Sapporo and, and South Korea, how's what's the working practices of the orchestra like compared to... Uh, your homeland in Switzerland or in Europe or the US, do you find much of a difference between how they work in rehearsals and how they play? Very much so. Mm. Um, in in Samboro, when I rehearse, nobody speaks. <laughs> so, you know, I'm spoiled. Yeah. When, when, I, <laughs> when I come to other orchestras and Sapporo, they know that they have to come prepared. Yes. In South Korea, need to convince them. (laughs) (laughs) But um, in in Sapporo, it's very clear that the job of the conductor is not to teach them the notes. They know that. So we have a very happy relationship. Well, you realize I conducted them last time in January. Yes, yes. And if I'm lucky, next time in January, next, next January. Well, that's the, that's the crazy thing, isn't it? Um, but we're basically, you know, I've, I've done a couple of weeks' work, but not very much. Uh, and, you know, it's it's going to be about 12 months off, just hiatus from yes. what we were all doing beforehand. This mad flying around the world and looking at those, you know, the orchestras that you're, you're, you have a position with now and where you live and other places you work regularly. Before COVID, we were flying around like lunatics, um, yes. What do you think it's going to be like in the future, um, or in the at least in the near future? And do you think we'll get back to what we were doing before? No. Mm. One thing I worry about the orchestras in in the states. Yeah, yeah. You know, because there are there there are not really subsidized, so they are private people, mainly old people. Who has the money? Yeah, uh, many of them died. Mm. Many of them are afraid to go to concerts. Mm. And you know, if 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 like New York Philharmonic is closed until next summer, yes, yeah, maybe they have. There's a lots of money in New York, but but many other orchestras, I don't know how they can survive. No, no. The other thing is. I mean, we in Europe, we have subsidized orchestras. And, you know, all those politicians see how the musicians sit home, do nothing. Mm. I don't know how much they are eager to subsidize that. Well, I mean, in the UK, for instance, you know, there was a protest recently because about a third of musicians in the UK are freelance and are, get, and are getting nothing, no support at all from the government. Uh, and there are people leaving the profession already. There are people yeah, either, I read either, about that. Yeah, That's yeah. terrible. Yeah, they're either emigrating to mainland Europe, to France or to Germany, or they're just not playing anymore and they're taking up other jobs or they're studying to be something else or because they can't see a way out of it and they're not being subsidised. Uh, so you know. I, I don't see 
I mean, it would be better than what we have now. Mm. But it this has really not only music; it has it's a big shock for culture. I think I read this morning when I did my homework, Matthias, that you've now made over 80 recordings uh, with various orchestras around the world. A lot of the ones I know are with the BBC Philharmonic, for instance. Um, what is it about recordings that you enjoy? Uh, I know some conductors don't like recording or they call it a, a snapshot of where they are at the time. Uh, what do you like about it? You know, I had when I took over the London Mozart players, then Shandos, my record company, said, you know, when Mozart do you want to record? Mm. And I thought of a long, long time, and I came to the conclusion that Mozart is over-recorded. Oh, yeah. We don't have record stores anymore. No. <laughs> we used to have record stores. If you would take the Jupiter Symphony, you would have 40 choices. Yes, yeah. And I had this idea about the contemporaries of Mozart. Now we are talking about 91, mm. 1991. And that, you know, most people knew the classical period with three composers, mm. you know, Mozart, Haydn, Beethoven, but they were composers all over Europe. And so I had the idea to make a, a series of records, the contemporaries of Mozart. And I found this really, really interesting because it, I, I think I understand Mozart better. Mm. And also Mozart in context with, his, with the world around him. And um, I found this very interesting. Mm. It, it, I think he under, I understand Mozart better. It's also, you know, there were some very, very good composers but most of them have a nice melody and an accompaniment. Very nice. Mm. If you see Mozart, Mozart also, I mean, this is known, his music became too complicated for the people, for, mm. for the, 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 the audience. And if you take the Jupiter Symphony in the last moment, <laughs> you, don't, you don't really know what is accompaniment and what is melody. Well, uh, is there any accompaniment? I mean, it's all. Yeah. There's that famous it's, bit it's, where everything's going on at once in a double and triple and fugue, and you just, how are you doing that? Yeah. I think the complexity is is a big difference between Mozart and his contemporaries. Yes. Yeah. There were others. I I enjoyed Korngold. Yes. It's an amazing composer. Well, I think that's where I first heard one of your recordings with the BBC Philharmonics. There is a, a set of Korngold discs um, or CDs, and I'm a massive Korngold fan, and I think that his name has, has sort of suffered from, you know, the career path he, he ended up taking because he had to leave Europe in 1939 or 1938 and ended up writing music for movies. But it... You know why should his 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 other music the wrote his, the stuff he wrote between the age of eleven and the day he left to go to the U.S. be forgotten or or less played because it's amazing music. Um, but you know when he went to Hollywood, 
he, he didn't know that this was still the beginning of film. He, yeah. Because in the opera, the composer is the most important thing. Wow. He didn't know that in film, the composer is not the important thing. No, no. He had to, he had to find that out. Yeah, that's right. And, and I, you know, that it's when you, you, know, you hear people say, oh, that, that his music sounds like film music. I always point out to them, no, film music sounds like corn gods. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I recorded that, that Sinfonietta. Yes. Big piece, big mm. piece that he composed when he was 15. Yeah, it's in B major, isn't it? A, yeah, yeah. Th there, there you have Hollywood, mm. but that's before Hollywood. Oh, yeah, years before. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have one more question I'd like to ask before we do the 10 questions. Matthias, this is a question I ask all of the conductors because everybody finds it interesting, but especially the conducting geeks and the conducting students. And it's about score preparation. Uh, you've conducted a lot of new music, uh, but also, you know, weird and wonderful and, and and everything in between. When you get a new score, how do you learn it? Do you start with an overall big picture and then come in smaller and smaller and smaller? Or do you start at the beginning and work your way through? And are you somebody who writes a lot of things in your scores? Are you like me? Do you use red, blue and black? Or do you like to keep your scores pristine, white and virginal? What's your overall approach to score prep? First, my scores have nothing in it. Okay. <laughs> um, when, I, when I get a new piece, maybe because I have been a composer, um, I analyze it. Yes. First the form, then the harmony and... If if you have a, a you know a, a thorough analysis, then you you already know a lot of the piece. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, you have to make a performance. You have to you have to say something about the piece. You know. Yes. You you know what? During this time, where we're all stuck home. Yes. I did enjoy, not so much learning music, but relearning music yes yeah yeah, yeah. pieces i have conducted many times mm. and you know when we're a professional conductor and you do a piece you pick up a score that you have done several times and it goes fast yeah yeah and it's wonderful to go back and think about it yeah re you know? like rereading a, a story that you know but yeah, but but then this time reading every word again rather than yeah. skip reading. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, I for one, and I know quite a lot of conductors when COVID hit in March, I stopped looking at scores at all. I didn't look at any because I found the process, I, all my scores were laid out on my desk in programs waiting to be performed. And when all of those concerts got cancelled or postponed and I put the scores back on the shelf, it depressed me too much to start to want to look at yeah. other, other music. But now I'm doing much as you are, you know, now I'm starting to get the odd little concert coming in. I'm starting to reopen scores and think, yeah, really, I, you know, I'm going to really relearn this again um, and take some time over it because I have it's some just time. Yeah. Relearn, we know it already, but it's it going deeper into it. Yes, exactly, exactly. And that's, that's I enjoy that very much. Mm. Mm. Brilliant. Um, is there anything you wish to talk about? 
uh, about anything in your career uh, at all uh, before I go on to the 10 questions, because... There's one thing we didn't talk about. Yes. Which I don't know, which you know about my work with television. I don't know about your work with television. Where, where, where do you do that? When I came to the Swiss Radio Orchestra after Cleveland. Ah, all right, okay. Um, and we had that situation where um, in, in Switzerland, radio and television like the BBC is, is all one organisation. Yeah. And uh, television had ads. Right. And the radio had no ads. Yeah. So television was rich. Radio was poor, hmm. but the radio had the orchestra. Yes. So they decided that television should give some money to the radio. Right. And they can then use that orchestra if they wanted to. Yeah. And at the same time, there was a new head of the music department of television and, and, and a young new director. And we got ourselves together. I was just new at the job. And we, we said, let's, let's do something. Mm. And one thing we didn't believe in was just take pictures of a concert. Yeah. Because the, the, the broadcasting of, of, of music on television is done like a football game. You know, if, if, <laughs> if you see the ball, then everybody's happy. Yes. And if you yeah. see the, the clarinet, then the clarinet plays everybody's happy and when you say the violins and 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 interesting is that when you have a loud bit which musically very active yeah you show the whole orchestra that's right yeah yeah which means yeah. visually there's nothing i mean the the, the, the millimeters that the the, the the bows go you visually is nothing going on yeah. and then when it's very soft you you show a violin closed yeah. with big bow movement, which is visually the opposite from 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 what you hear. Yes, of course. Yeah. So we 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 try to do something totally different. We had this orchestra, which we could use for weeks. Yeah. And we started filming. We would pre-record the music. Yeah. And then film, you know, f five seconds, seven seconds, and they would pipe pipe in the music, and I would rehearse the musicians so this absolutely synch synchronized with the, yeah. the sound, and then we might, could make the perfect picture, you know, not not the musician who scratches himself or or, or <laughs> yeah. is unconcentrated. So you, you could make the perfect picture. And it's a long story. I make it very short. Yeah. Um, any, anyway, since we pre-recorded it and then filmed it, we didn't. An orchestra didn't need to show to, to be sitting like an orchestra. You know, oh. if if the flute plays with the cello, you, sh you show the flute next to the, the cello. Mm. One step, or the, the geography has changed. The other thing is when the musicians had to rehearse five times five bars <laughs> with me they knew it by memory yes so we didn't need music stands anymore you know with all the the the, the music on television the, the, the most musicians you don't see no no 
So we have no music stands anymore. Next step, where are the music musicians looking at when they're playing memory? Yes. By memory. You know, there was terribly unconcentrated. So we had to make up stories. Hmm. So they would act whatever it is. Yeah. And so we did the whole series of that. And we, we got a, a, a Grammy nomination for that. That sounds wonderful. Can you, can you still see these anywhere? Are they on YouTube or places like that? I think there are some. No, I shall be looking them up the minute I finish it, um, talking to you. You know, it was, it was stunning at the moment because it was so new. Yes, yeah, yeah. It, it, it exhausted itself because it yeah. was so different. Yeah. yeah you, you could not do it over and over and over again. But it was it was a fun time. And also did some children's concerts. Oh, well, I mentioned for that, that was amazing. For children's concerts, they would, yeah, they would lap that up. Because there, there was there's none of the formal formality of seeing an orchestra laid out in its rows and music stands. And, you know, when they, when they can watch a TV programme, and the, as you say, you have a trumpet player sitting next to a viola player or whatever playing the same music, then uh, it, it can fire their imagination. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the only contemporary thing I can think of, there's an orchestra in London called the Aurora Orchestra that once a year for the BBC Proms, they play a major symphony from memory. And they've started doing things. Uh, last year, they did the Berlioz Symphony Fantastique, and they they were you know people were coming and walking in and standing like you were doing, standing next to people, or and then disappearing, and then people like coming in and out of the of the orchestra uh, because there were no music stands. You, you but you cannot do it any other way. You, you know, they, but this is a difficult piece to memorize for the orchestra. Uh, yes, I know. Yeah, yeah. That, oh. uh, uh, they, they've done they've done many many well as I said the proms once every year this year they did Beethoven seven it was Berlioz last year uh, I think they've done Shostakovich nine as well yeah, um, did, yeah how many rehearsals do they have well now that's the question I don't know um, um, uh, the conductor Nick Colon is uh, was in an earlier episode of the podcast and uh, and my memory. Uh, my memory is not good as remembering how many rehearsals they have, but they do have a lot. But the thing is, I think they, much like you were talking about in Sapporo, uh, they know they have to be prepared for the first rehearsal. So that yeah. they know what the piece is many months in advance, the players. So yeah. They have to practice, get it at least to, you know, nearly memorised before they even start the first rehearsal, before mm. they, they do all of the other stuff. That sounds wonderful. I should be definitely finding those on YouTube. Uh, and I, yeah, I look forward to seeing those. That's brilliant. Thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's, that's really good. At, at yeah. one point in my life, this was important. Matthias, it is 10 questions time, and I'll start at the beginning with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I like uh, many things that have something to do with nature. Yes. Like yeah. I have a nice house here in Ticino, in the mm -hmm. southern part of Switzerland, and we have a river next to, next to the house, and th this is a lovely sound. Mm. So it's a very peaceful when I go to bed. Mm. And then we we have lots of birds. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's it's very peaceful. Mm. I find construction sites are 
absolutely horrendous. Yes. Yeah. If if you have something like like that next to your house, I hate it. Mm. Brilliant answers, and I have to say, Ticino is a wonderful part of the world. Oh, it's so beautiful there. It is. My wife and I and the children and my mother and father and my mother-in-law, we, we take two cars every year. We haven't done it this year. We drive from Birmingham in the UK all the way to Abruzzo in Italy. Uh-huh. And uh, I think on at least two of the occasions we've done it and we've driven very close to Ticino, um, either going north or going south, going home or going to the, the... And it's just a wonderful part of the world. It's a very dangerous place to drive because I'm too busy looking at mountains and hills and, <laughs> and, and castles on the top of hills and things like that. <laughs> well, considering that uh, I have no chance to conduct at the moment, if you have to be somewhere, this is yeah. certainly a wonderful place to be. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? I have, a, we have a very big garden. Mm. I, I read a lot. Yes. And... Um, a day in your in your big garden reading. Sounds wonderful. No, I, 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 I clip bushes and, and, and weed and <laughs> do things like that. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? I'll, I'll give you two. Mm. One is the most obvious one, which is George Sale. Mm, yes, yeah. The other one is one I have worked with quite a bit, is Claudio Abado. Mm, yes, yeah. Well, he was linked with Lucerne, obviously, for many, many, many years. Um, Dad, I was, we did Gruppen together several times. Oh, wow. Who was the third conductor? Can you remember? In Vienna, it was James Judd. Mm-hmm. In Chicago, it was Henry Mazur who was the the resident conductor. That was not yeah. very good, but um... <laughs> <laughs> oh well, superb choices. Uh, Zelle, I'm not surprised by, and Abado, of course. Yeah, what a what a legendary conductor. Very different. Very different. And now to the question that a lot of conductors don't like. <laughs> and again, you can give more than one answer. And who would be a favourite current conductor? And I give two again. Yes, yeah. Also very different. Mm-hmm. One is Esa Pekka Solonen. Mm-hmm. In the in the school of George Sale. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but yes. The other one is Gustavo Dudamel. Mm. In the school of Claudio. Yes, yeah. Very similar baton. Grip. Yes. I, I hate using that word because it's not. We don't grip the baton, but baton holds. <laughs> um, but you know what I mean. It's very, very yeah. similar the way he approaches the baton and the use of the baton. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? But that, that's a situation that made it hard. And okay. Yeah. That, that's. I was. I was a assistant conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra, and. I had to take over Mahler's second symphony at two hours notice and I've never conducted it before. <laughs> yeah, well, that makes it hard. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I have to tell you, I conducted the backstage music, you know, stage yes. music, yeah. which means I couldn't see what Lorin Marcel was conducting. I was backstage. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was uh, scary. Yeah, I bet. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. And there's one particular bit because I've ne- I've rehearsed Mahler too for Andrus Nelson's once, 
uh, and for somebody else, I've rehearsed it twice, but I've never performed it. There is the 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 flute and offstage horns bit at the beginning of the finale, which I'm still not sure I, I conduct correctly. Um, maybe one day I'll work it out. But yeah, it's yeah, it's a tough one if you want to ask. If you're backstage, so I've done <laughs> yeah. it for, for various. I've done it for Bernstein. I've done it for Ormandy. Uh, yeah. I've done it for Cloud. Uh, uh, no, well for for Cell. Yeah, yeah. Then I've conducted the, the symphony when I knew it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant answer. With, brilliant. More, with more than two hours notice. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> brilliant answer. Uh, number seven, we're rattling through them. Um, and just to remind you, you're not allowed to say passport, baton, phone or score as the answer. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Well, you know that I'm Swiss. Yes. The Swiss army knife. Ah, yes. There's one sitting right next to me on my desk. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that there's all the, what you can do besides the knife. There is also a, a, a screwdriver. There is a bottle opener. There's all kinds of things that you need when you're traveling. Mm. <laughs> Brilliant answer. But it's, it's, it's a question of habit, you know. Yes. As a, as a boy in Switzerland, you get that knife and it stays with you all your life. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? It's something I've, I feel relatively strongly about. You know, when you're a young conductor and you get a concert, then they always tell you what to conduct. Mm. That's okay. As a young conductor, most of the pieces you do for the first time. Yeah. I'm always disappointed when, as an old conductor, works that I know that I have done, that I feel strongly about, that I feel I have something to say about, I would like to conduct those. <laughs> but if at my age, they still think they have to make programs for me, I don't like it. Mm, I don't blame you. <laughs> I don't blame you at all. Yeah, I think if they're going to book Matthias Bamet, they should c c book him to conduct whatever he wants to conduct. <laughs> or, or, or at least being negotiable. Yes, exactly. Yes, yeah. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? My owns. I mean, I have been oboist, I've been of a composer, yes. I have been a, a conductor, I've been a festival director, I've been a, a, a co-producer of, of television. Yeah. Well, um, one more. Go on. I, <laughs> what else? <laughs> I am fascinated by history. Mm. I would like to be a historian. I would have to know more, but you know. Yeah. Such a big fit, but that that is interesting. And and in any particular direction uh, of history, I mean, not just musical history. Is there a part of history that fascinates you more than any other? Not modern history. No, no. I, I like the Middle Ages. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final meal and drink? I would like to have a sushi in a good sushi bar in Tokyo. Mm. But I'm not allowed to go there, you know. <laughs> you are. You are. It's a fan it's a fantasy question. It's the last time. I, I would have to go into quarantine. <laughs> uh, and would you have um, a Japanese beer with it or some sake or both? Both. <laughs> both, of course. Yeah. <laughs> Matthias, it's been absolutely wonderful chatting to you for the last hour or so. And well, I hope very soon I can see you again. Yes, well, you're very good with your questions very easy to talk to you good thank you we'll and do it again 
A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal, with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with a young British conductor who, after studying in Scotland, Germany and Switzerland, won the 2017 Nestlé and Salzburg Festival Young Conductors Award, and two years later, in 2019, became chief conductor of the Tiroler Symphony Orchestra Innsbruck in Austria. But until then, bye-bye. <laughs>